We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, we're continuing our series and following the events in Ukraine and everything surrounding the invasion of Ukraine with my colleague, the wonderful John Daniel Davidson, who has been following this very closely. John, welcome. Hi, Emily. I think part of the strategy here um, on the left, at least, and to the extent that this is political, which is very political as, as they see it, um, is to distract from the failures of the president's domestic policy agenda. So, John, I wanted to start by asking you, do you think there is a concerted effort by the political establishment? And I mean that on the left and the right right now um, to to sort of shift our lens to foreign affairs in a way that benefits them politically. I think that's exactly right. Uh, Part of the reason there's such enthusiasm for a maximalist policy on the part of the Biden administration vis-a-vis the the war in Ukraine is precisely for that reason, because uh, things are not going well. Uh, The Biden administration, essentially, their domestic agenda is totally dead. Uh, and they're they're going into the midterms complete losers. Nobody believes uh, that the State of the Union is strong. Uh, uh, you know, last week's State of the Union address was depressing and weird at times. Uh, you know, Biden seemed completely out of it. It's like, you know, and, and sort of like he's living in a fantasy land as well. Um Inflation is bad. It's getting worse. People are getting sick of it. Uh, you know, the longer like we have high inflation like this and high prices and high gas prices, the the worse it hurts normal people because they have to keep paying more for food and gas and everything else. And so it, it has this compounding effect. Um, the Biden administration would gladly talk about anything else. Uh, other than their failures uh, on the economic front, their failure to control inflation, the, their failure to control gas prices, um, just by doing things that are like are really no brainers, but they can't do because of their left wing, like, um, you know, f- approve, uh, you know, oil and gas exploration, right. get get uh, domestic oil and gas production underway again. Um, and that would and that would have the other salutary effect of um, pushing back against Russia in like a substantive way. So I think, I think you're right that this is a lot of the enthusiasm for escalatory policies in Ukraine is a, is a desire to distract from domestic failures. And so Michael Schellenberger wrote um, a a post on his Substack just this morning, he quoted Milton Friedman and I'm not going to uh, say, I know the quote verbatim, but paraphrasing it, something to the extent of nothing changes without a crisis. Crisis is the only thing that creates real change. And I'm wondering if you think this is a crisis that creates real change on the left's energy policy. Schellenberger himself is somebody who's sort of on the left, but has been attacked bitterly uh, by people on the left for all of his positions, whether they're on nuclear or the war on drugs, whatever it is. Um, Is there any likelihood that in this situation, when you have the sort of blatant geopolitical advantages um, and all of the logic on the side of revamping our domestic energy production and shifting to nuclear, shifting back to the nuclear, um, is is there anything that, is there any straw that will break the camel's back on this? I suspect the answer is no, but what do you think? 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I lean no as well. And part of it is that kind of uh, the closed mindedness of of the left that they are right. You know, that, that like the, the, this is the future, that the, the future has to be this way. There was a, over the weekend um, in The Wall Street Journal, they have a long kind of like uh, interview piece in, in the opinion section every weekend. Uh, and uh, the. Uh, I, I'm blanking on who the person they interviewed now was some, you know, big historian, foreign policy expert who has a very grand academic ideas about how the world is going to be. And one of the questions was about Afghanistan and, and asking about, um, you know, the fate kind of, of, of people in Afghanistan now after 20 years of kind of these liberalizing efforts by the West and billions and billions of dollars poured into Afghanistan to, to support what we all thought was this like nascent democracy there and liberal uh, society that was going to emerge from the U.S. kind of occupation. And, you know, and the interviewer was sort of pushing back on this notion like isn't hasn't that all been shown to be like folly now the taliban are are in charge and you know afghans are facing famine and you know all of our gains over 20 years are basically have been erased in, in like a, you know the matter of six months um but this guy was unable like his priors like are are resistant to reality he was like oh i just don't think that that situation can last it just it in the long run you know afghanistan can't persist as this like a uh, you know uh, theocracy theocratic backwater like it, it has to you know it like we'll get back on track and like based on what what is going to turn afghanistan into the liberal democracy that uh u.s policy planners uh tried to make it for the past 20 years so I, I think that there is a similar kind of allergy to uh, just reality uh, on the, on domestic issues like energy. The left has so painted itself into a corner about you know the, the that fossil fuels are the past and renewables are the future that we can never go back. And I don't know that any real world changes are going to dissuade them of that, I, which is. Which is dangerous too, because you see how committed they are to this idea of the liberal national order that they're they're being completely unrealistic as well about how they think this war in Ukraine is going to end, um, because because of their their priors cannot be adjusted to to fit circumstances at all. Tell us more about that point. What do you mean when you say um, their priors about how this war in Ukraine is going to end and, and that sort of being similar to this um, allergy to reality or the reality, the, the allergy to logic um, in, in that context? Tell us more about what you mean. So over the weekend, Secretary of State uh, Anthony Blinken had a statement that I'm, I'm not going to quote verbatim. I don't remember it verbatim, but the effect, the the essence of it was uh we are committed to a uh to ending this this war with uh ukrainian political independence uh with russian forces leaving and going home and ukraine being totally independent and having uh total territorial integrity and we are we are going to pursue that until we get it that that's how this ends so in other words he was he was articulating a maximalist policy that that ends with a completely humiliating russian defeat and possibly like the collapse of the putin regime and certainly the collapse total collapse of the russian economy uh, that that is a 
a maximalist view of the situation and a maximalist policy that is not only uh, going to escalate things quickly, uh, but but is you know is that realistic? Is that a, is that a realistic way that this ends? Like, does the Secretary of State of the United States think that a realistic way for this war to end is for a nuclear-powered Russia to tuck tail, cut its losses, totally do a complete military withdrawal from all of Ukraine, Ukraine's entire territory restored to full sovereignty of an independent and democratic, I mean, Ukrainian people. Like these, the words that I'm saying, like as I'm saying them, like these words are like drugs for the like global international like elite and the yeah. neo-libs and neocons. Like they say these words, like they think they're magic words and they say them and they think that that they they can speak truth to power by like uttering these magic phrases. And uh, when like in the meantime, like Russian artillery is reducing Ukrainian cities to rubble, you know, like we have to get, we have to be, get real about this situation. Russia is going to reduce Ukraine to rubble uh, if nobody steps in. If, and it doesn't look like anyone's going to step in. We're not going to step in with, with, with aircraft and troops and artillery and tanks. And it doesn't look like anyone else in NATO is going to either. And so since that's the reality, then we need to get serious about how this war is going to end and what Ukraine can hope to achieve and how much of Ukraine is going to be destroyed and how many civilians are going to be killed before there's some kind of a negotiated settlement that puts an end to the fighting. But this is not... Our leaders are not thinking in these terms. Are you certain um, that in the case of Blinken, and, and part of the reason I want to talk to you, John, is because I think you can balance both what's happening over there with what's happening here. And I think that's a, like the, the context and the broadened aperture that you have to apply to this conversation. But if Blinken is um, walking around with that demand list and Russia released the demand list that it has going into the negotiations with Ukraine, I believe today um, with President Zelensky uh, today, which you know, would ban them from joining any blocks, um, including NATO, of course, would cede that territory on in eastern Ukraine to Russia, um, et cetera, et cetera. So are you certain that when Blinken comes with or how certain are you that when Blinken comes with these what seem to be patently ridiculous demands, even if they're sort of a nice fantasy, um, when he comes to the table with those, do you really think that there is no risk of escalated military intervention on the part of the United States and the rest of NATO? Or do you think it's possible that it's sort of conditioning the public or, or softening the public to say we need to, you know, we, we need to have the no fly zone. We need to do X, Y and Z. Yeah, I, uh, that, that, that's a good point. And, and it may be that this sort of maximalist rhetoric that we hear coming from Blinken and, and others is a prelude to softening up the U.S. public for the idea that, you know, we're going to send our Air Force or NATO air warplanes in to shoot down Russian warplanes over Ukraine. Um, maybe it is. And, and maybe they have uh, they've already made the decision that, that that's kind of what they're going to try to try to position uh, their negotiations in a way that leads to 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 a escalating Western involvement, uh, military involvement in this war. I think it's a grave mistake. I think that Ukraine is such a central strategic um, part of Russia's whole concept of national security and, and national interest that they 
uh, th- this is the kind of thing that they would risk a nuclear confrontation over. This is not a detachment of Russian troops in Syria, right? Uh, th- th- this is not a peripheral thing. This is central uh, to to Russia's national interest as Russia conceives it. So um, if that's what Blinken and, and others in the White House are doing, I think that it's uh, it's crazy and it's reckless. And but 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 I don't think that they're doing that, though. I think they're just saying these things because they think that when they say these things, it's reality. I mean, imagine, uh, you know, looking back, you know, uh, years from now uh, at whatever happens in Ukraine and uh, I imagine students and historians looking at like the picture of like the that the, the U.S. Congress uh, took standing on the steps of the Capitol with their, like the holding the Ukraine, the American flag with like some Ukrainian colors in it. Now they all have their blue and gold scarves. Uh, how like just feckless and idiotic, like that, that's what our, our lawmakers were doing while Ukraine was being reduced to rubble. Like this is, this is like living in meme world, you know, this is hashtag meme world. It's not real. And, and for some reason, our leaders like, are living in this fantasy world where these empty gestures are supposed to uh, change like facts on the ground. There's, there's, there are cold, hard facts underway in Ukraine right now. And the logic of force is being brought to bear on the Ukrainian people. And if we want to save lives over there and prevent the complete destruction of this country, we need to get real about that. Huge tech companies in America pay next to nothing in taxes, meaning they barely give anything back to the society that made them rich. They may not do a lot of giving, but they sure do a lot of taking. Ladies and gentlemen, I am talking about how these tech companies enrich themselves by taking your personal data. They grab your web history, email metadata, and video searches to create a detailed profile on you and then sell that off to the highest bidder. Companies aren't just selling products anymore. They are selling you. You have become the product. To protect your identity and data from these tech giants, I recommend using ExpressVPN every time you go online. Think about all the websites you visit, Facebook, Twitter, Google, everything you do and say online is tracked by these giant corporations. Using your public IP address, they can uniquely match your activity and know your location. ExpressVPN makes you anonymous online by camouflaging your IP address and replacing it with a different secure IP of your choice. ExpressVPN also encrypts all of your data so that it's protected from hackers and anyone else that's trying to spy on you. And what I like most about ExpressVPN is how easy it is to use. Just download the app on your phone or computer, tap one button, and you're protected. So if you're like me and believe your internet data belongs to you and not to greedy corporations, then ExpressVPN is the answer. Protect your data with the number one rated VPN provider today. Visit expressvpn.com slash federalist to get three months free of a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash federalist expressvpn.com slash federalist to learn more. 
I wanted to ask exactly for you to follow up on that point, because, um, of course, our culture has now been rejiggered around an emphasis or the, all of the incentives are for empty gestures. Uh, that's yeah. that's really the, the primary currency in our political culture. That's for sure. Um, so if we are serious, if we had serious leaders, um, as things stand right now on Monday morning, John, what do you think they should be doing? Uh they should be communicating directly to the Ukrainian leadership and telling them, we are not going to send warplanes. We are not going to impose a no-fly zone. We are not going to send NATO troops. We are not going to war with Russia. And uh, nothing that that you say, Ukrainian President Zelensky, and nothing that happens on the ground in Ukraine is going to change that. And be really honest with Ukraine's leadership and say, you guys need to enter into negotiations with Russia to put an end to this fighting because because NATO is not going to go to war with Russia over Ukraine. And just just be candid uh, and urge the Ukrainian leadership to begin negotiations. Um, th that that's what uh, that's that would not be an empty gesture. That would be, I think, um, a responsible and statesmanlike thing to do. Um, to the extent that you want to punish Russia, and, and I think that Russia deserves uh, punishment for the invasion of Ukraine, and they deserve uh, to pay a heavy price for it. If you want to make Russia pay a heavy price for it, then you immediately implement, like we talked about earlier, you, you, you uh, pursue energy independence for the United States, uh, you open up oil and gas exploration, and if you're going to sanction Russia, yeah. Stop buying Russian oil. That's sort of like the the, yeah. the the lack of seriousness around. You know, you hear Jen Psaki saying these just like bone crushingly idiotic things when she's <laughs> asked about why why aren't why are we uh, still buying Russian oil? And she's like, oh, it only makes up ten percent of our domestic oil consumption. Well, ten percent is ten percent more than zero. Uh, we're going to buy 600,000 barrels, 600, yeah, 600, something like 600,000 barrels of Russian oil a day. Um, but, you know, we're not going to sell Russian vodka on the shelves. And we're not going to have Russian opera singers singing our operas. It's so unserious. <laughs> the cats, uh, the, the Cat Federation uh, banned the Russian cats, right? Well, I think we need to ban cats. That's a separate podcast. But... Our colleague Christopher Bedford actually has a Russian cat. <laughs> I'm sorry to inform oh, you. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, that's a funny cat. Mm -hmm. um, well, he's got to go. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, Chris. There's no way Chris knows how to download podcasts, so we're at no risk. <laughs> uh, tech executive Chris Bedford. Uh, so, so, John, on that on that point, um, and it's an interesting one, You, I, I feel like you're pretty sympathetic to the argument that um, – our conception of our national interest that like multiple things can be true at once. You just said, for instance, that Russia needs to be punished absolutely severely. And I agree with that completely. Um, there's this emergent uh, argument circulated by, you know, Mearsheimer has made this for years. And if you go back and look at what he was saying, it's very prescient um, about how the West was leading Ukraine down a path of sort of self-destruction. So it can be true that sort of Ukraine is responsible for its own actions and that the West fueled the fire. Um, as we're looking now with, with some retrospect, not a lot, because we're still in literally the fog of war, um, where do you sort of see that 
balance uh, in the past, because I think that's helpful for how we think about it going forward as well. Yeah, I think that the the whole the whole question of NATO expansion is is one that we're going to be debating for a long time. Um, and there's been plenty of debate about it in the past, but now you know the, the the question is: Did did NATO expansion act as a deterrent, or or was it provocative? And did it actually provoke uh, this this war, uh, this this invasion of Ukraine by Russia? And uh, you know, you mentioned Mearsheimer, but there's a whole host of foreign policy uh, scholars and foreign policy practitioners, people who are actually in government, going back. Uh, to you know, to to the mid 1990s, who were warning against expansion of NATO, even to like Poland uh, and and to the Baltic states, mm-hmm. uh, you know, saying we we should not be expanding NATO eastward toward Russia. That this is this is a mistake. This is going this is going to uh, destabilize the situation the security situation in Europe. It's not going to bring greater stability or or long term you know peace to the continent. Uh, uh, and so I think that, that um, those, those are these these are questions that are going to have to be uh, debated and and they're going to have to be answered. Uh, I think one of the things that uh, is is quite obvious now is that um, you know Putin d- attacked NATO or uh, attacked Ukraine. Um, knowing that Ukraine was not part of NATO. He didn't attack the Baltic states, right, Who, which, mm-hmm. are, which are NATO members. Um, and it's easy to uh, then, you know, make the the uh, analysis that, well, that's, you know, NATO works because uh, Putin didn't attack a NATO member, he attacked a non-NATO member. And so you're likely to see um, the ascension of Sweden and Finland into NATO uh, uh, soon as well. Um the wisdom of doing that and the sort of the neatness of that analysis, I, I think may be premature. Uh, it, it's, it's a little too neat to, to just say um, NATO, NATO expansion prevents aggression. So let's make everyone a member of NATO and then nothing bad will happen. Like what happened in Ukraine. Um, I don't think that's quite right. Uh, and, and I think that um why is it wrong? Just I agree with you, but why is it wrong? I think it's wrong because because it, it ignores the the nature of uh, how NATO is perceived by Russia. It's it's easy for us to say, well, NATO is not a threat to anyone. NATO is a defensive alliance. Uh, Russia doesn't see it that way, and you have to it, when when you are playing, you know, sort of grand uh, geopolitics uh, with great powers, you have to understand how other great powers perceive things and and you have to uh, care about what they are concerned about and our cavalier attitude about Russia's attitude toward NATO uh, that basically saying uh, we don't care what Russia thinks about NATO we don't care that Russia sees NATO as a as a threat and and sees like um, sharing a border with NATO countries as uh, as a national security threat to them that's a mistake. That's a strategic mistake on our on our part. We need. It's not that we have to agree with Russia, but we need to understand where Russia is coming from. Especially if you, you know, when you're trying to uh, uh, negotiate uh, something like an end, the end to this war, or if you're trying to navigate uh, the status of NATO countries in Eastern Europe, you need to be attentive to and understand what the concerns are of a power like Russia. 
And that's the same is true of China. And, uh, and in fact, uh, we have a much bigger problem there than we do with, with Russia and Ukraine. Um, not necessarily uh, as it regards to NATO, but certainly as it regards to Taiwan and, uh, and, and other issues of, of, of influence and, uh, and national security in the Pacific. Uh, but, um, but the idea that we can just sort of like, okay, uh, let's just make Ukraine a member of NATO and let's, and let's just make Finland and Sweden members of NATO and let's just surround Russia with NATO members and then let's just like grind Russia's economy to the dust and just break them on the wheel of the West. That, that, that is like what people are advocating for right now. And if you think Russia is going to allow that to happen and, and it w- will not resort to its nuclear arsenal at some point, then you're living in a fantasy world. Well, that that recalls Adam Kinzinger's tweet from last weekend, where he said the uh, the breathlessness over nukes is in some way novel. You know, we used to sort of stare down the nuclear threat so much more easily. Um, and it, it's what you're saying right now basically is call Putin's bluff. It'll all be fine. Um, what do you and that is becoming more and more relevant, I think, by the day, because uh, there's the, the escalating rhetoric is making it more and more relevant by the day. So what do you make of the people who believe they can sort of armchair quarterback through their psychoanalysis, um, Putin's risk calculation and and his uh, control over how he will decide to use his nuclear arsenal? What have you made about that uh, analysis so far in this this crisis? I, I don't think it's very analytic, for one thing. It's just you, it's, you know, it's I mean, science, John, and yeah, oh, yeah. capital S. If we're following the science on Russia, see, and, uh, <laughs> and the science says that he won't use his nukes. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think it, th- there are instances uh, that uh, people who you know take Kinsinger's view of things can point to in the past, where uh, where you know Russian uh, personnel. So, point along the nuclear um, sort of chain of command uh, stopped the, esca- the you know nuclear escalation um, and and Russia kind of stood down uh, and and of course you can point to plenty of times when Russia backed away from a one-on-one confrontation with the United States um, going back you know all throughout the Cold War um, and I think the difference here is that you know th- this is this concerns a uh, something that is right on Russia's doorstep. It concerns Ukraine, which which we know Putin and many people in the Kremlin basically consider to be part of Russia, uh, and they're sort of trying to right a historical wrong here by bringing Ukraine back into Russia's orbit. Um, as I said before, this isn't some peripheral thing. This is central to to Russia's own sense of its national security and its and, and even its sort of national like purpose. Uh, so uh, I don't think it is a safe bet or a very like well considered position to say, uh, you know, in the past Russia backed down like from the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right. So I think they'll back down this time too. Um, it, it, it is it is not it's not an apples to apples comparison uh and, and the other thing is you know like uh 
I, I know I'm old, but I'm not old enough to have like, you know, lived through the whole Cold War. Uh, but <laughs> those who have, <laughs> have said um, that, you know, we prevented a nuclear exchange during the Cold War, um, mostly by like luck. You know, there was there was a, a lot of statesmanship. There was there was a, a lot of back channels and there was a lot of effort put into not having a nuclear exchange. But but at several points in history, it kind of just came down to luck, you know, that we we dodged a, a nuclear war, not because we were so smart, but because we were fortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that underscores sort of like the tenuousness of, of a of a world where nuclear armed nations are are our adversaries and our uh, are in a state of cold war with one another as, as we sort of find ourselves now uh, in with Russia, if not with China. So I think basing your policy on the idea that like, Oh, Russia, back, you know, the Soviet union backed down from the Soviet missile crisis or the, the Cuban missile crisis, you know, in 1962. So I think we're okay here. Let's go ahead and shoot down some Russian warplanes. Uh, that's not uh, very responsible, and I don't, and I don't think that's the right reading of history here either. Um, to to take these in, these instances in the past, where Russia may have backed away in a peripheral theater from confrontation with the United States, uh, and and apply that to the Ukraine war, I, I think that that is a flawed analysis. Indulge me for just a moment, because I'm wondering how much you would agree with the assessment that we are so, I think we take for granted, um, maybe the best way to call it is the liberal world order, uh, the the um, end of history as it's been misinterpreted by people, liberal order. We have been dealing with nuclear threats for less than 100 years. Um, and the nuclear, the post-nuclear order has never I think, been sorted out. I think this is another painful moment in that process, but we have never, it, it seems to me, actually like fully um, worked out what it's like to live in a world with nuclear threats. Although the Cold War certainly was that. It certainly was that. You ended up with this um, situation in Eastern Europe with Russia, where you have all of these states um, that are, are cut off from the Soviet Union that are culturally um, dealing with that fallout that are politically dealing with that fallout that are still in some ways under the thumb of Russia. And the nuclear threat is is haunting the entire negotiation between NATO and the West and Russia. It seems to me that it, it, this has been um, these these little, let's say, ruptures, you know, from Crimea and uh, everything that's happened. Orange Revolution, you can go on down the list with places other than Ukraine. Um, so there have been flare ups, of course. But this seems to be like another big reminder, if anything, that we've never really figured out as a global uh, as a global society, um, how to how to arrange in a world order with nuclear threats. Yeah, I mean, um, even taking taking aside the nuclear aspect of it, the what you said at the beginning that the international world order is actually, you know, uh, not as robust as as its its champions uh, pretend that it is. Um, the last two years have demonstrated the fragility of the international order. COVID and the uh, the snarling of global supply chains uh, show how a a communicable disease can grind the you know uh, global trade to a halt. 
uh, and bring out like the latent, uh, you know, uh, authoritarianism, it, you know, from New Zealand to Canada. Uh, it, so, you know, democracy in that sense is fragile too, uh, get, given something like a, like a pandemic. Um, and then, and then now you have the war in Ukraine that's showing the sort of, uh, um, the fragility of the post-Cold War international order that despite our threats and despite our hashtags and our memes, despite our, uh, you know, Ukraine flag like avatars, uh, Russia went ahead and, U- and invaded Ukraine anyway, um, sort of calling the, the bluff, uh, the, uh, calling the West's bluff. And, uh <sighs> And the idea that Russia has not already baked into its analysis the sanctions regime that we're imposing on them now is is mm. also a bit a bit naive. Of course, they knew that we would respond with sanctions. Of course, they knew what kind of sanctions we would likely respond with, uh, and and of course, they made provisions for that. With China, well, do you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what else was Putin's visit to to China? Uh, just uh, right at the beginning of the Olympics all about when they announced this uh, strategic partnership um, that that was them hammering out uh, what their arrangement was going to be pursuant to Russia's like imminent invasion of Ukraine. Um, and, and you've seen sort of, you know, China kind of sitting back very cautiously, you know, abstaining from UN votes um, and, and definitely studying the West's response to, to, to Russia's invasion here uh, and studying kind of the, the response of public opinion um, for their own reasons, uh, because they, they have, some, they have also a territorial dispute they'd like to uh, unilaterally adjudicate Um on their end. And so, and which I wouldn't be surprised if any day they decide to, to take action to, uh, um, uh, assert control over Taiwan. Um, so the liberal international order, much like global capitalism and, and the global free trade system, isn't this like robust, like, uh, you know, permanent adamantine thing. It's contingent, it's fragile. It needs constant uh, uh, care and attention to maintain, uh, and it is susceptible to uh, history. Uh, and and it's also susceptible to the vote of like other nations. We have this idea that that we're the only ones who get a vote, um, because you know other nations like Justin Trudeau might say of the of the truckers they ha- they have um, um, what was his phrase they they have. Um, they have the wrong opinions or they, they have, um, the, I can't remember exactly what he said now, but he uh, basically said, you know, these people, they hold unacceptable views. Right, right. That was great. They hold unacceptable views. Uh, you know, Biden's White House is basically saying Putin holds unacceptable views about Ukraine. Hmm. Uh, and that's that. Well, he may hold unacceptable views about Ukraine, but he but he also gets a vote on what what uh, you know happens in the world because he's the leader of a great power. Xi Jinping may hold certainly unacceptable views, but he also gets a vote. And so, the idea that the international order, uh, the U.S. led international order, the global uh, economy is something that uh, can just be directed by fiat by Western uh, elites is uh, it's once again it's a fantasy and and we we need to get we need to get real 
Well, I was going to say, on the other hand, it's a, it's also a fantasy that we can sort of, mm, I don't want to create a straw man here, but that we can sort of neatly just uh, disengage from these conversations because to your point, the nuclear world is not even as old as the oldest people alive. Um, and so in the scope of human history, we have not been, we have never been confronted um, with a technology as, as vastly powerful as what nuclear technologies are. And again, this is something that we've worked out in less than one person's lifetime. And there's still so much working out to do. And a U.S.-led world order, obviously, if you are an American, has a whole, it comes with a host of benefits, obviously. And so then it raises this question. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, John, American companies disengaging from Russia um, in ways that will almost certainly, almost certainly be used against America. Americans be used in Trudeau-esque ways if you're just hitting the kill switch on Visa, hitting the kill switch on anything else. What do you think about that development um, as it played out? Netflix, Visa, I mean, there are tons of companies that um, over the weekend it, it continued to pace. What do you think about that? I'm sorry, your your Visa card has declined because you support an uh, unaccepted uh, political uh, party. Uh, you you expressed unacceptable views on social media. Your uh, access to your funds uh, has been suspended. Uh, it's easy to see where this goes. This is um, this is you know Trudeau and Canada freezing the financial assets of the truckers, but on a geopolitical scale, right? Uh, I, I think. Everyone should look at the actions of Visa, for example, and be worried about what Visa is going to decide to do about you. Um, you know, it's not hard to to like look look forward, like in in time, to see um, something bone completely bone chilling playing out in the United States. Trump decides to run for president in twenty twenty four. He runs for president. Uh, let's say he you know, narrowly loses and then he, you know, makes statements about how, you know, the election was rigged. Uh, but, you know, uh, I don't know, 80 some million people vote for voted for him, but he still loses, let's say. Um, and then you have uh, companies like Visa and uh, Google um, decide, you know, you know, let's say you have a Gmail account and you voted for Donald Trump and um, or you're a registered Republican or your face was caught using facial recognition software at a Trump rally before the election. So Google flags you, shuts down your Gmail account, Visa like cancels your credit cards. Um, it, it's easy to see where, where this goes. This is a kind of um, terrifying uh, social credit system that's not even being imposed from like the, you know the the White House. It's being it's being imposed by global corporate elites uh, who have unimaginable powers. And and I think any any the lawmaker right now, Republican or Democrat, um, in the United States should should be thinking very seriously about how to curtail the the power of these these corporations before because because this kind of thing is is going to happen I think sooner or later. And before we wrap, John, I want to get your thoughts on uh, the. 
it's been very interesting to watch the, uh, let's say, political establishment, media establishment here in the United States um, seem to be very happy with Ukrainian nationalism or very uh, endorsing of, of Ukrainian nationalism, of Ukrainian self-defense with uh, weapons, um, of masculinity, uh, of course, without using any of these terms, but everything that's being cheered by our political media establishment that uh, has has no kind words for American nationalism, American masculinity, or American self-defense is um, just aside themselves with uh, love for what they're seeing in, in those exact terms come out of Ukraine. And I want to say this is a good thing because those are virtues um, and, and there are virtues of, of all of those things. And it, at the same time, however, it does seem so deeply cynical that this is not a substantive cheerleading. This is uh, cynical and uh, self-serving. It's absolutely cynical. Uh, yeah, it's uh, the, the 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 Twitter blue checks who are like cheering on like civilians taking up um, you know military rifles and and uh, um, I mean even glorifying like the fact that like kids are being given rifles, right? Women, uh, yeah. Yeah, women and children are being being given uh, military rifles. It's totally cynical, and it's sad too because because um, they don't care what happens to the people of Ukraine. They they, they you know don't their their uh, Ukraine flag avatars, notwithstanding that they are cheering on, uh, you know, like a, a sort of insurrection that's going to get a lot of people killed. And uh, they're cheering on a Ukrainian president who is just 24-7 agitating for the West to step in on Ukraine's behalf and put our uh, war planes and our soldiers in harm's way uh, to, to end a war that, that he could end uh, through negotiations. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's appalling. It, it's totally cynical. And... Um, and and it's and in some ways it's it's even sort of like darkly comical, right? For because mm -hmm. exactly as you say, like these these are things like, you know, if 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 they you know, these are the kinds of things that they would want to like suspend people's bank accounts for here. In Absolutely. The well, talk. Let's talk about the Ukrainian National Guard, which includes literal Nazis, yeah. literal Nazis, and the, they're being sort of we help bring and fund. Yeah. Oh, of course, yeah. Of yeah. Course. What else are we using our money for? Um, but yeah, and again, like they will shut down your credit card in the West if you are part of a trucker convoy. But if you are a Nazi in Ukraine, um, then you are a, a hero for defending your land. Yeah, look, nobody ever accused the left of intellectual consistency. Okay, so <laughs> like you could you could just like spend you know, your days just chronicling instances of intellectual hypocrisy on the part of the left, and and you would never be finished with the task. So, <laughs> and by the way, I don't say that to smear. I think it's amazing what people are doing in Ukraine, and I wish that if in some sort of hypothetical um, thought experiment, if the United States were invaded, that the the men in the CNN and green rooms who have, you know, are, are cheering on what's happening in Ukraine would enlist and take up arms and do the same thing because they love their country and they appreciate it and they respect what it's done for them and, and opportunities and culture and all of that good stuff. But I doubt it. Hey, I think we all know that they would welcome their new ant overlords and uh, <laughs> they, they, they would be the first 
the the first to uh, say, you know, that the people who are taking up arms in America in this insurgency are are domestic terrorists, and uh, our new ant overlords need to hunt them down. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I that that's that is uh, I think that's exactly what would happen. Is there any point that we missed, John, that you think is essential to sort of having a, a reasonable, fair minded understanding of this that's not overly colored by the, the propaganda sort of being spun on, on both sides? Uh, well, I would just say that the propaganda is so uh, thick and heavy. Uh, it's very hard to like, you know, discern the signal through the noise right now. Um, and part of it is that the entire corporate press is sort of following in the lead of the neocons and the neoliberals in beating the war drum and trying to, um, push for a, an escalation on the part of the United States and its allies. So in that environment, it makes it very difficult to think clearly about, you know, what is it that we're talking about? What are the stakes? What's the prudential path forward? Um, what are the United States's obligations uh, to its own citizens? What are our obligations to our allies? And what's the responsible thing to do? for uh, the people of Ukraine who are, who are facing a, a very terrifying and dire situation. Um, so I, I, I would just say that, uh, you know, our, our, our listeners should keep that in mind as they're reading the news and, and, and uh, corporate media outlets that have an interest in uh, escalating the, the war and in, and in some ways sensationalizing it um, that, that's a, uh, uh, that it's very it's very difficult to 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 think clearly about this stuff and so it's important to take a step back from the sensationalism and take a step back from the overheated rhetoric and really think through like uh you know uh, are we prepared to like get into a shooting war with with russia and then are we prepared for russia to uh you know resort to its nuclear arsenal is that is that a situation that we can avoid and if we can avoid that you know what what do we need to do to avoid that and I was going to say, you don't have to have the answers. I mean, these are right. extremely complicated questions. Um, and I, I say this to somebody uh, admittedly under under 30 um, who is, is young enough to, to sort of not have lived through the Cold War and all of the uh, the, the history uh, leading up to this moment. Um, you don't you don't have to have the answers uh, right now. You can sort of uh, you don't have to see things in, in the black and white that they're being painted in um, and. On that note, that's why, that's why we have books. That's why we have, we have history books for people like Emily who are under thirty. Well, John, are there books that you? Are there books that you? I mean, people under thirty don't read books uh, because they are antiquated. Um, There's a series of twenty-second YouTube videos that I recommend yeah. for our viewers and listeners under thirty. Uh, is is there uh, a book though that you think would be that that's helpful for people who are looking for a primer? Uh well, for a primer on the on the Russia Ukraine uh, situation, uh, th there are there's not one that comes to uh, to off the top of my head in terms of a, a book about the Russia Ukraine, um, but but one grand strategy book that's always good to go back to uh, is John Lewis Gaddis's Strategies of Containment, which is a a, a book about um, Cold War era strategy, and I think a lot of the lessons that that are in that book are are still germane since we're, we are um, we're in a post-Cold War era, but but a lot of the, um, you know, we're, we're still in a great power politics 
era. And uh, between the United States and Russia and China, we are entering into a, a, a multipolar world where great powers are going to uh, sort of contest one another. And, and that has not really been the case since the fall of the Soviet Union. We've been in a unipolar world with a U.S.-led international order. Um, and I think it's, it's uh, no matter where you fall on the question of Ukraine, I think everybody can recognize that that, that world is kind of coming to an end. John Daniel Davidson, senior editor at The Federalist, thank you so much for your time and for all of your time, actually, recently as, as you help us think through this uh, situation. Thanks, Emily. You've been listening to another edition of The Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. Mm-hmm.